0: Hello and welcome to Series 6 of the Hay Festival podcast. We're sharing selected highlights from some of the recent festival events, alongside revelatory backstage conversations with some of the world's greatest writers and thinkers on the objects, experiences or interests that feed into their work. I'm joined this week by classicist and comedian Natalie Haynes, who talked to me about knitting, comedy and the other influences that shape her career. But first, we'll hear an excerpt from Natalie's Book of the Month event from 2020 when she was researching and writing her new book, which is out this September Stone Blind. Natalie expertly and sensitively reimagines Greek mythologies, focusing on putting women back at the centre of the story. And in this segment, she casts a very different light on the character of Medusa.
1: I think it's really interesting that we look at Medusa's story from the inside, um, uh, from the outside rather, when we often look at other transformed. Greek characters from the inside. So the comparison that I think is illuminating here is that is the story of Medusa and the story of Midas. So I thought we'd have a little quick look at the two of them next to each other. So Medusa is turned into a monster, or at least she's given her snakish hair. We don't know when she acquires her. Her litifying gaze, her ability to turn things to stone, she may have always had it. Um, It's tempting to think it comes along with the transformation that we can read about in Ovid's Metamorphoses, where she gets her beautiful hair. She's a very beautiful young woman, according to Ovid, Um, and then she is uh, raped by Poseidon. Um, And in some versions of the story, in Pindar, for example, uh, that. Uh, encounter is consensual and happens um, in a a meadow outside. But in Ovid's version, and and the more frequent, more common version of the story, um, they have a non-consensual sexual encounter. Poseidon rapes Medusa in the temple of Athene, and Athene is so angry by this violation of her temple rather than of Medusa. Don't for five seconds think that Athene is your um, feminist heroine here. She is never. On the side of women, I'm afraid. She even says that in the um, Oresteia. She says, I, "I always take the man's side in everything." In the third play, the And it's like, well, yeah, she really does. Um, she doesn't punish Poseidon for the violation because she can't; he's too powerful. So she punishes Medusa. It is, as far as I'm aware, uh, one of the very earliest accounts of the literal monstering of a rape survivor. Um, so she, uh, Athene turns Medusa's hair into snakes. And at that point, therefore. Uh, Medusa becomes uh, a monster as we perceive her. And what's interesting, I think, is that most of the time when we look at this story, what we think is, how do I fight her? How do I avoid being turned to stone by her? We see ourselves as Perseus in this narrative. We're encouraged to see ourselves that way. Um, for me, at least, growing up is the Ray Harryhausen Clash of the Titans movie, where Harry Hamlin is hiding behind a pillar and it's all kind of flickering and shadowy and dark, and Medusa. Um, sort of glides out. she has a, a snake's tail in that version as well. She glides out of the shadows, she's got a bow and arrow, she kills his comrade. We're waiting, for, and we're there, we, you know, we're watching him sweat, we're concentrating on him as the hero. And she is just a monster. And so we're waiting for him to decapitate her because then we'll be safe. But here's the thing. Let's look at comparatively another mortal who offends the gods or at least makes a mistake. Uh, which the gods find exasperating, and somehow we see from the inside rather than from the outside. And that, as I say, is Midas. Midas does a favour for a friend of uh, Dionysus, I think, um, and is granted a wish. And his wish, of course, as we all know, is that everything he touches turns to gold. And this starts out being fun, at least how Ovid tells it. So he changes like a stick uh, and I can't remember, an apple, I think, an ear of corn, into gold and delightful, everything is gold. And it only goes wrong when he starts trying to eat and drink, the wine turns to molten gold in his throat of it says, and he um, chips a tooth on the bread that he's trying to, to eat. Um. It's interesting that a lot of people feel like there's a version of this story where he embraces his daughter and she turns to gold. Um, it's a very, very late edition. Nathaniel Hawthorne, I think, is the earliest version of this, um, which is exactly what annoys me about modern retellings uh, of ancient myths which were done by men in the 19th and 20th century. Because, you know, it's like, why aren't there any female characters in this? I should just put one in and then kill her. <laughs> Good, I'm so glad you were here. She's basically the equivalent of Gwyneth Paltrow in any film from the 90s. Oh, but be careful, and so on. Um, so. Uh, With Midas, obviously, he gets this uh, capacity to turn everything to gold, which means that he will uh, imminently starve to death because everything he tries to consume turns to gold. Um, And at that point, uh, he goes back to Dionysus and says, I'm pretty sure it's Dionysus, could be Apollo. I think it's Dionysus, and says, could you take this power off me? It turns out it's not so great. And he says, yes, you need to go to this river at its source and then bathe in it. And then essentially all his his gold-converting power won't be equal to an entire river and flow. And so it, it will be kind of washed away from him. It's a beautiful kind of moment because Ovid then tells us that uh, when the um, ground near this river floods, you can still see gold flecks on the ground. Obviously, this is a, a river where gold could be panned for in some very minor way. And so this is his cute way of, of explaining it. Um, and so Midas makes this journey and uh, bathes in the river and loses his. Gold converting power and continues. I might add that he goes on to annoy another god later. I think that one is Apollo, and he gets donkey ears. Um, but you know, even that's not really terrible, is it? Nobody's going to decapitate you because you have donkey ears, and that's what they really need is. I guess I have no idea what you might really need donkey ears for, unless you were a donkey, in which case, listener. Um, but I think it's really interesting that we see Midas' story from the inside and Medusa's from the outside. So all the way through the Midas story, we're thinking. What would it be like if everything I touched turned to gold? What would it be like if if I tried to eat and drink and then I couldn't? How would I get rid of that power? And yet we never think of Medusa that way. How? What would it be like if everything you looked at turned to stone? We always see her from the outside, and I think that's extremely revealing. Um, it bothers me a great deal that Perseus is the hero of this narrative. Uh, he is not to me, and you'll be unsurprised to certainly certainly not be in my version of it. Um, but uh, in, for example, a very famous statue by Canova, there's a copy in the Metropolitan Museum in New York, um, the statue is literally called Perseus Triumphant and it is a white marble um, depiction of Perseus. He is naked and um, handsome and young and he is holding up the decapitated head of a monster of Medusa and he is Perseus Triumphant. And this image was uh, co-opted, I guess, along with the Cellini sculpture, uh, which shows Perseus in an even more triumphal pose. He's literally standing on the on the decapitated corpse of Medusa and holding her head. Um, and uh, and this image was co-opted in the 2016 U.S. presidential election uh, because it was inconceivable to people uh, that if a woman was speaking, offering opinions, she might not be a villain. Uh, and therefore she could be turned into a monster, and therefore she was mapped onto uh, Medusa. And it was pretty hateful at the time. But uh, the reason I mention it now is because in 2018, an extraordinary reversal occurred uh, which has seen its uh, final act, I think, or at least its, uh, its next act, uh, only in the last couple of weeks. So in 2018, uh, you may remember that Professor Christine Blasey Ford was giving evidence of sexual assault. Um, to the Senate Judiciary Committee about a Supreme Court nominee named Brett Kavanaugh. And she gave her evidence and uh, very quickly that week, uh, as as, at least as I remember it, um, on my social media timelines, um, I kept seeing a meme which was absolutely extraordinary, a gender-reversed example of the Perseus triumphant image. So again, it looked like a statue of white marble in front of a black background. Um, I think it may, in fact, have been uh, designed quite on computer and the, the real statue is a later creation, but it's attributed to 2009. So you must make of it what you will. I've never been able to find a convincing um, footage of this statue from earlier than that, but uh, perhaps it exists and I just haven't found it. Um, and this gender-reversed statue is a uh, marble, apparently, Medusa, a young woman, beautiful, naked, holding up the decapitated head of a young man. And in some versions of this meme, which I saw in that week in 2018, there was text accompanying this gender-switched image, and at the top of the image, uh, next to Medusa's head, it said, be thankful we just want quality. And then next to Perseus' decapitated head, it read, and not payback. And the first time I saw that image, I gasped. I was so shocked at this. I was, that it just, and I kind of stopped for a moment and thought, what what on earth does it say about you that you're shocked by the image of a decapitated man? And you have walked past that Canova sculpture how many times, and you've never been shocked at all. And I thought, I'm not just rescuing these stories of women from uh, the prejudice of somebody like Erasmus or Nathaniel Hawthorne or Robert Graves, I'm, I should be rescuing them from my own prejudice. I hadn't even begun to interrogate, that that I am making these assumptions too. And the reason, as I say, that this has become uh, topical in the last couple of weeks is because there is now a statue uh, based on this image by Luciano Garbatti. Um, and it was installed outside a courthouse in Manhattan about a week and a half ago. I should tell you that there are some people who are very angry that it doesn't have pubic hair and that it therefore is a very masculine uh, male gaze image of female beauty. And that is a legitimate complaint. I would um, meekly point out that there isn't always pubic hair on ancient statuary, so it's not quite as porny, perhaps, uh, as it might be. But... Bonus fact, which I only discovered this week, uh, thanks to uh, Professor Tim Whitmarsh at Johns College, Cambridge, is that um, according to an uh, uh, expert in polychromy, who he knows, the um, uh, statues, as I'm sure you know, temples and things in the ancient world were painted and not white as we often perceive them to be. Um, when we see statues with pubic hair, which is quite rare, usually men, because women are, are clothed um, and not naked in the same way that uh, men are in ancient statues very rarely, um, that pubic hair was apparently painted blue. I have absolutely no further commentary to give you on this subject. This is a very new fact to me too. I do not know why the pubic hair was blue. I'm merely telling you that the pubic hair was blue, but only for men. So I can't tell you if if you should be angry or not about the Garbati Medusa uh, not having pubic hair, but I can tell you if we were
0: hoping to stick with a, a very ancient version, I mean, it should kind of be blue. That's what I'm saying, there it is. To watch the rest of Natalie's event, you can sign up to our Hey Player at heyfestival.org forward slash heyplayer. At our recent festival, I stole a moment with Natalie between the many events she was chairing to talk more about her work and the influences that feed into it, starting with the crush that accidentally kick-started a career in comedy. Natalie, I, I did classics at A-level and uh, failed. I got well I got a D that's not failing mm, I, I tried to cheat because uh, we did a section on vases and I literally wrote the names of them on my legs and then went to the toilet halfway through my exam and even that didn't get me even that wasn't enough no
1: yeah I feel like I should tell you off, but I think generally if you're (laughs) inventive enough to try and cheat an exam, maybe not like if you're going into surgery or something like that, but generally I think if you want to, if you want, if you're inventive enough to try and get get around the fact that you haven't done your revision, which obviously you should have done, then I feel like you should get at least some marks for that.
0: Yeah, I agree, thank you. I mean, I took classics because... At the time I was choosing it, there was a boy I fancied who was going to take it.
1: Perfectly valid. I started comedy for the same reasons.
0: Oh, amazing.
1: Yeah, Yeah, there was a beautiful man and um, he thought I was really funny and I thought he was really good looking. Um, And so in order to see him again, I was like, oh, we should write something for this comedy society. Uh, And then obviously took him home because it was the 90s and we did that sort of thing these days. Um, And we, you know, dated for a few weeks. And then uh, he walked me to my first audition so I couldn't sort of weasel out of it. And he waited loyally outside um, so I had wow. to sort of write a thing and do it there. And then, of course, uh, he broke my heart to A Thousand Shards and my comedy career, you know, eventually brought me my
0: flat. So it we'll worked out fine. And <laughs> um, where is he now? No one knows. No exactly. <laughs> yeah. dead in the agenda. No, just kidding. Am I there Yeah. <laughs> and um, I was wondering then if, you know, so uh, interested in free time and how pe- what people do in <laughs> free time. <laughs> free time or yeah. time that's not at work, um, yeah. affects your work. Do you know what the kind of Greek attitude was in ancient Greek times to... to, to Yeah, leisure's quite a
1: big thing, isn't it? For the Romans especially, um, there's this sense... You particularly get it in, like, Horace, um, where he's very big on having a sort of... what we would now probably describe as sort of um, working to live rather than living to work. So one of the things that he's looking forward to as he's writing his poems is being able to be sort of retired in the country with his friends and just having a sort of simple dinner of you know, beans and nice wine and chatting. And um, so he's very big on leisure. And obviously they have, you know, famously the Romans have the, the shows that what we would consider to be unbelievably violent, um, uh, pastimes of gladiatorial fighting and uh, and chariot watching and racing and even watching those things was, was quite a violent thing to do, I would suggest. Um, watching people kill each other is, is quite an aggressive hobby, but that's the Romans for you. Um, they're not uh they weren't they weren't knitters. Um, no. I think in a way. <laughs> perhaps that's why they got an empire, but at the same time, perhaps
0: that's why they lost their empire. Not enough knitting. <laughs> not enough knitting. I think we've all learned. <laughs> Did people have to pay to watch stuff like that, or was it free?
1: No, usually it's free because um the games are put on by a rich citizen or often um in the imperial age, obviously the the emperor. So there's some absolutely vast number of animals are shipped into Rome under the Flavian dynasty, so Vespasian and uh, Titus. So uh, Vespasian becomes emperor in 69 and and dies in um, in 79. And Titus only rules very briefly, but manages to lose Pompeii uh, and Herculaneum in that quite short reign of two years. And then his brother takes over um, in 81, Domitian. Um, And they ship over this enormous quantity of of animals for what's called a wenatio, a wild animal hunt. Um, so then you would see the arena, not gladiators fighting other gladiators, but gladiators, you know, killing beautiful exotic animals. Um, and this was seen as a great, exciting day out. So we get these incredible sort of lists of animals that were brought into Rome to be killed. and start, I mean, there are lots of things to love about the Romans, but... you know the sanctity of life isn't isn't one of them yeah
0: i mean i'll give them that you would never get that for free nowadays no uh, that's true so yes so at least there's that that. yeah yeah do you think um your peers at school do you think they are they surprised by what you do now
1: well yeah i think they probably are i don't know um i guess you probably have to ask them but yeah i don't i mean i was always quite Prone to to being both quite withdrawn and then quite mouthy and and obviously my career has taken me in both directions But writing where you're very withdrawn and stand-up where you're very mouthy. So yeah, maybe maybe not as much um, As I would guess, but yeah, it seems surprising to me But maybe you're not always the first person
0: to know. No true. It's very true And where do you draw inspiration nowadays for your comedy material?
1: Well, luckily, I don't have to do comedy for its own, you know, purposes anymore. So I'm only ever doing talks about the ancient world and, you know, and that is easy because I'm already spending all my time in that world, you know, either writing or researching. So the radio shows are a huge part of the um, new material that I generate for the stage every year. Um, And I write a talk to go with each book. So when Stone Blind comes out in September, my Medusa novel, I'll... I will by then, I say, blithely have written something that will go with that, that I will then tour for the rest of the year and and probably into next year as well when the paperback is out. And it's quite, you know, it's sort of easier with the non-fiction. With Pandora, I just basically learned each chapter and then let the audience choose who I would talk about so it would be shaped to whatever they were most interested in. But with the novels, it's sort of a a slightly finer line because it's like, I want to talk to you about... Medusa, but I don't want to give away the plot of my own book or make you feel like there's no need to read it because you now know loads of stuff about her. So, yeah, with the with Thousand Ships, I had a the talk very much focused on the sort of sources of, yeah, literary sources for the Trojan War and sometimes art sources. So, I think I might try and try and do that again with Stone Blind, but I'm not showing it. I'll work it out sometime in August, I would imagine. <laughs> Just one minute for the deadline. I mean, uh, the, it is honestly true to say that I wrote what became a big sort of set piece of the A Thousand Ships, what was it called? Honor Among, no, not Honor Among Thebes, the one at Troy Story, the live show that went with that. Um, there was a big focal piece on Leo and the Trojan priest who tries to get the, the horse burned um, and not taken into Troy. And then he gets attacked by sea snakes. And I literally was still writing it in the taxi from the station to the first yeah. I found the story that I wanted to tell by accident on the train up there and Uh I was like okay well you know
0: yeah (laughs) goes that way sometimes but yeah Um, do you find as well that when you're like researching and studying away for these kind of projects do you are you quite good at sort of like turning off and being like, okay, that's enough now. That's no, enough. I don't, no, no I'm terrible at just it. Just eat, eat, drink and breathe it.
1: Yeah, I work every day. Yeah, I do. Every When
0: the book comes out,
1: I'll be... It's not unusual at all for me to work seven days a week. And when I'm touring the book, it'll probably become plus five or six evenings a week because I'm doing shows every night as well. So, yeah, it's not... I'm a terrible, terrible example um, <laughs> of how you should live your life and work-life balance. <laughs> don't be me. That's all I have to say on the matter. So you, you never stop? I it's not it's not my best thing mm. it's 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 becoming more i'm good more at difficult. other things yeah so knitting yeah there you go <laughs> but yeah I'm, i find it really hard to concentrate on knitting when I've been yeah. writing all day i just find it really my eyes are tired so yeah no i could knit before i could read my mum taught me when i was four so um and i can sew and all of those things quite you know uh what's the word i want uh gendered female hobbies <laughs> uh, but it's been really interesting of course therefore learning about them as you know sort of archetypal things that women are supposed to do in the ancient world. Yeah, Penelope is always weaving. Mm-hmm. Helen is weaving. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, even Clytemnestra does some nefarious uh, dressmaking uh, in order to make a trick garment to help her kill her husband, Agamemnon. Um, so those kind of deviant variations on um, like wholesome pastimes I find really interesting. I'm sure that's partly because they were my pastimes for a really... Really long time. Although now I spend more time, you know, running, kickboxing, and less time. I think I just spend too much time already sitting down looking at something which is really nearby, mm-hmm. and now the time I have spare, I don't bring that side. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, I, I do find this interesting actually because I feel like that kind of generation of like home economics, and have it, have it, we don't make women sort of learn that at school anymore. And I, I, I almost feel like I can see this now, my, my peers, women my age. None of us really know how to fix clothes anymore. or use a sewing machine, yeah, and all yeah. of our mums do. It's really interesting. It's like but a, dying... a big upsurge,
1: right, because of sewing bee and bake-off and things yeah. like that, and these sort of gendered female um, hobbies is that we would like to be able to do them. We'd like yeah. to be able to make Buy clothes. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, actually, yeah. I find it really interesting because it's still presented as quite a sort of, like, a thrifty thing to do. And obviously, in environmental terms, it's much thriftier to repair something than to... Buy something new, but in terms of money, it's much cheaper to buy something new than it is to repair anything. You know, when I was a child, um, my grandmother used to unravel jumpers, and and knit the wool. And the texture of unravelled wool, where it's all still truly really bumpy because it's you know still retaining the memory of yeah. the stitch shape it was in. Um, it seems to me so familiar. I could, I can feel it in my hands just talking about it. But now the idea that we would unravel sweaters and wind the wool and then reuse it. It's like I, I don't know when I last did that, um, and I know how to. I, I guess I, I can't, and some, obviously some fabrics are more uh, easier to do that with than others. If you use like, like mohair, which snags, you can't unravel it very easily. So I guess that makes a difference, but it's not, making clothes isn't at all now a cheap version, which it, it was once. You know, fabric's expensive, sewing machines are expensive. Um, even quite basic sewing machines can be, yeah, reasonably expensive. So you kind of... It's not something you could just experiment on. We need, like, a library where you could go and rent one for a, an hour to have a go and see if you like it and yeah. to be worth the outlay because otherwise you're asking a lot from somebody. Because if you buy one of those little tiny ones for children, it's like, so they can do so little. I'm not sure you get much of a sense of it.
0: That would be a great idea. I'd, yeah. I'd like to see that happen. Be nice, huh? Um, and what's it like, I mean, I imagine you have to sort of learn to be quite happy in your own company as a writer was that an evolving discipline for you or have you always been sort of like that's your natural hunter
1: yeah i don't know i guess i i think i'm usually pretty happy being on my own i don't particularly worry about it um and so yeah i mean stand-up is a bit like that too because you know obviously you in a way you're never more alone than when you're on stage in front of a, a hundred a thousand people it's you know or you know, A tiny number of people, is still it's still a very divided world when you do that. And th- that never particularly bothered me. Lots of things about stand-up bothered me, but that wasn't really it. And you spend a lot of time travelling to and from gigs. And sometimes it's lovely and full of camaraderie, and there's loads of comics in the same car, or on the same train. But equally often, and especially later in my career when I was doing more solo shows and, and fewer circuit gigs, you know, the good news is you earn more money. Uh, the bad news is it's because there's no one else on the bill. So it's just you driving there and driving back on your own. Mm. And now, you know, almost all the stuff I do is on my own, obviously. And so I guess even my performing life is pretty solitary even and and writing equally. But it that's part of why I took up kickboxing because my, my previous exercise of choice was always running, which again is a pretty solitary pursuit. Um, And I thought, oh, it'd be nice to have like a a gang because most people have got (laughs) a gang, you know. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I don't work in an office, and obviously now everyone else knows what it's like not working in an office. It's like there are good things about that. I don't have any sorrow or regret about it, but I kind of miss having a gang. So now I've got a kickboxing gang, and you know they can take your gang, so it's good news.
0: Have you got any hobbies that come to mind where you have sort of given it a go and it's gone horribly wrong? Oh yeah, I'm bad at loads of things.
1: <laughs> I mean, I'm really, really bad at loads of things. So yeah, I have loads of, you know, like, like most people, I w- really wish I could draw. And I can't, I, I can just, I've, I've kind of learned to see well enough to write about art, which, you know, I get to do in nonfiction, in Pandora's genre, I get to talk about art quite a lot, and I love doing it. But I, that That critical eye doesn't translate into a creative eye. And, you know, when people were sort of, oh, I'm just filling a sketchbook with my beautiful inner side, that looks so fun, doesn't it? But obviously it requires a level of skill that I don't have. And when people go, oh, yeah, but you can learn it. It's like with singing. You go, I'm sure you're right, and I could definitely learn to do it, you know, just slightly better than really badly. But it's quite hard to pursue things that, you know, you, you don't feel like you've got any affinity with really but then you know I stuck with kickboxing and I'm not particularly good at that either I just like yeah
0: do you think you're good at facing fears yeah quite good yeah I think so I guess standing on a stage on your own would probably do that to you
1: yes I think that's true I mean it's quite difficult isn't it because more people say they're afraid of public speaking than of dying. (laughs) so it's I think it's the still the most common fear and I think probably the reason for that is that most of the time when people are called upon to do it it's it's in like the least comfortable part of their life. So it's like a best man speech or presentation at work. So there's a huge potential for being humiliated. And I think if you do stand up, then obviously you have that same thing, but you're doing it in front of strangers, at least at the beginning. You know, they don't know who you are. They're not going to remember your name. It's fine. Mm. Um, and, you know, when I started out, obviously people couldn't film it on their phones. So if it was a disaster, it would only be a, It would become an urban myth really quickly. Oh, I remember when she died really bad. Ah, well, you know, and people would just forget, you know. it's a Comedy really teaches you that other people don't remember your humiliations with anything like the clarity that you do, um, which is a lesson for us all, I think, probably. But, yeah, I, yes, I probably am quite quite good at facing my fears i'm not going to walk into a spider-infested room anytime soon so <laughs> don't even try enough yeah
0: <laughs> do you feel nervous getting on stage now no all? never not at all never that's amazing and uh, that's changed has it
1: oh god the first it. five years were awful okay. yeah i felt sick pretty well all the time wow. you know you'd put a gig in your diary sort of three months hence and every single time you turn the page but like, oh wow. no oh say it's not so so i haven't got to go and do that and you know then you'd go and it would go really well or be a total disaster and the amount of dread that you'd experience would be disproportionate to the quality of the gig but of course when you're trying to make a living at it it, the pressure is absolutely enormous whereas now people don't people don't expect to laugh every you know 40 seconds or whatever you know somebody like Milton Jones or um, Tim Vine can get a laugh every you know 8 seconds something ridiculous Mm. oh my god the the sheer hit rate it just makes me kind of breathless with admiration (laughs) quite aside from the, the quality of the jokes which are obviously also incredible um, and now I don't have to do that the pressure is off people are essentially looking for quite a fun lecture mm. from me which is a much easier thing to deliver um, and also I guess there's a sort of you know when you're on the bill like one of three comics or something you're part of their night whereas now people buy a ticket with my name on it they're part of my night and so that, it, it, it seems really minor, but it, it actually isn't. They're invested in liking me. Um, and while, the, you know, I suppose it would be possible to be like, oh, people's expectations are really high and I've got to live up to them. It's way better than expecting you to be rubbish and not turning up. You know, when um, I started writing Stoneblind, my mom said, I'm really worried about you. And I said, why this time? And she said, because I'm worried that you'll be... Feeling really stressed and under a lot of pressure to write a book after Ship Stood Really Well. And I was like, when I used to write a book, I didn't know if anyone would ever read it at all. So this is better. (laughs) You know, yeah, I suppose there's the risk (laughs) that I'm going to sit here going, oh, people will open the phone and they'll be like, this is nowhere near as good as that. But generally, they only bought the damn book to open it. That's fine. I'll take (laughs) it. So, yeah, no, the pressure of high expectations
0: is much more enjoyable for me than the pressure of low expectations. Um, and obviously you focus a lot on, on classics in, in much of your work. Do you Can you ever feel like there are influences in your own personal life that kind of enter your writing? Or are you asking me if I murder people? <laughs> yeah. sounds a bit like you are. <laughs> Have you ever built any Trojan horses? Yeah. Um, just, yeah, that big wooden yeah. thing over there. What is that? I don't know whether you feel like you ever see kind of bits of your own life in, in yeah, telling your stories.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's always slightly awkward when people... They do it less now because the characters sort of pre, pre-exist at least as names. You know, the, the way I draw Medusa isn't, I guess, the way anyone else has or would. Um, but people still feel like she exists because the name exists and the appearance exists and all of those things. But yeah, certainly when um, I wrote one modern world novel before I, I moved into it, although it's inspired still by ancient myth, um, in the Amber Fury*, people are like, oh, are you this person? Are you that person? Um, you are all of them Mm. you know they're all me of course they are they they all came out of my pen they all came out of my head so yeah you're all of them you're the villains and the heroes and the monsters and all of it and um, because I'm big on um, structure and the shape of a book and that's the thing that I have to have before I can do very much at all that comes before the voice to me and sometimes those two things therefore don't work out quite the way you're expecting so um I was expecting Stone Blind to be one voice, which I don't normally do. Normally I write multi-voice novels, and it is polyphonic as all get out. I just couldn't. It's like there is no way I can stick with this voice. So much so that as I was writing this one section, I was like, I'm not even sure. Not only do I not think I can write the whole book in this voice, I don't think I can write like one chapter in this voice. It doesn't work. And then, of course, when I sent it in to my editor, they came back going, we need more in this chapter. you're like... Oh, okay, so it was just so it was just me, you know, that, that I was wrong. You know, and you're not always the best judge. Sometimes you are wrong. I wonder if that separation is something that, you know, where you go, Well the character's not really speaking to me, what you mean is I haven't worked out how to do this bit of the book yet. And I think probably at least part of my subconscious brain was going, Don't find this too easy because otherwise you'll write a a single voice novel and that's the wrong choice for this story yeah. so interesting yeah i think i think often your subconscious is moving either at a different pace or in a simply in a different area from where your conscious mind is and it just takes you a while to catch up um, and trust it i guess as well. yeah exactly because you know your subconscious is routinely saying why sit at your desk why not go for a walk have you thought about the sofa is it time for a biscuit why was that the washing machine does the laundry need hanging up, etc. Sometimes it's yeah. not helping. No. So you can't trust it, you know, because it's, it's it just wants to dick about. Yeah. And I, Well, I respect that option. It's
0: like, no, we've got a deadline. Thank you for tuning in to the Hay Festival podcast. Join me next Thursday when I'll be talking to novelist Joanne Harris about writing rituals, hypnotic triggers, and hotel rooms. If you're enjoying this podcast, please share it with a friend or leave us a rating. This podcast was hosted by Poppy Evans and produced by Shabie Naharo Achanith. I'll see you next Thursday.